Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm Ethan Ryder today. I'm joined by Chris Cartman. Chris, how are you doing today? Ethan, splendid. Glad to uh, be with you again at the outset of this new year. Yeah, new year. Uh, new year and soon to be season for ASU as well. Their season ended with the loss in the Las Vegas Bowl to Wisconsin. There were nine starters and key reserves opting out or key reserves that were not playing in the game because of opting out or transferring. So we're going to talk a little bit, Chris, about ASU and the transfer portal. There's a lot of buzz around transfer portal around football, and there has been for ASU as well. They now have had five former four-star signings enter the transfer portal since the start of December. So Chris, is this a surprise and what do you kind of see from this situation? It's hard to say it's a surprise. Um, you, you're going to expect, given the amount of um, adversity that the program is under right now that there are going to be transfers right you had three of the position coaches on the team suspended um the the transfer portal in general outside of asu's particular headwinds has become just the a force where there's just a ton of kids that are moving around very migratory from one year to the next um I can't say that there's really a big surprise on any of ASU's five and to go through them. It's uh, Jordan Banks, the linebacker. He's dropped down a level. He's probably a little over uh, ranked too highly to, to, to start with. So not as big of a hit there, but then uh, Dan Monte train um, decided that he's going to switch from running back to linebacker at Ohio state. That is pretty much, uh, a surprise to me that, that the, the switching of the sides, given that he looked like somebody who could play in the NFL uh, as a running back, though, I will say that some of the 24-7 sports analysts thought when he was in high school that he was a better linebacker prospect, and that's where Ohio State had recruited him. Um, Tommy Hill, the defensive back transferring from ASU to Nebraska, four-star DB, really highly uh, regarded, major upside that's a, that's a big hit for the future of the ASU secondary. And then, of course, the receivers, Johnny Wilson going to Florida State. That was ASU's top-ranked uh, overall prospect and wide receiver in the 2020 class. And then uh, Junior Alexander, who was the only uh, pros wide receiver prospect that ASU signed in the previous class. Um, it, it's, it's a big hit. The, the Sun Devils have added a few guys in the transfer portal. But one of the things that I'm always looking at is the overall sort of ebb and flow of the talent of a, a roster under any particular uh, football tenure at ASU. And that was building better, 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 better uh, the first few years under Herm Edwards. And now it, it's very uh, conceivable that it, it is um, re regressing quite rapidly. It, there's no doubt that it's going in the wrong direction for for the Sun Devils. Um, and, but it leaves you kind of wondering if they have really already peaked because 2021 high school class was small, not particularly impressive. 2022 class, at least the mid-year signees, only a half dozen of them, uh, one four-star uh, prospect and, and running back Tevin White and outside the top 75 in the country. That's about as bad as it gets at ASU. You couple that with 
an inability now to retain a bunch of these uh, most prominent four-star recruits that they signed over a two-class period, and you're getting into some really scary territory. Yeah, and as you said, it's not necessarily surprising what's happening. This, of course, is happening throughout the country as well with the transfer portal and just kind of the new times that that brings. But with ASU specifically, you touched on a little bit of just players leaving and what that might mean. But in terms of the roster that ASU is going to be able to put together for this coming year, what does these these transfers in and, and both out and in really do for the projected roster of the coming year? Yeah, so we know that Daniel and God is the only scholarship running back returning right now. And I mentioned Tevin White, so that gives them a second uh, four-star prospect between those two guys. And they have a couple of decent walk-ons there, but they're short, at least one scholarship player that they should have, and really probably two. You look at wide receiver where not just Johnny Wilson and Alexander, but also Jordan Porter elected to transfer. And they've only signed one high school wide receiver over the last year and a half. Um, they've also added, of course, Brian Thompson, the, uh, the junior, the wide receiver at, from uh, Utah, who was a junior this past year. But right now they only have seven scholarship receivers who are slated to come back next year. And yes, they have among them um, several guys who have started extensively Ricky Pearsall and LV Bunkley Shelton and then Andre Johnson and Brian Thompson. So at the top, it, it's, it's an experienced group, but behind them is only three guys who are left in the fold um, who uh, are returning scholarship players. Elijah Badger, super talented. I mean, he's got as much upside as anyone. Chad Johnson Jr. was also a four-star recruit out of high school, but the only other one is Geo Sanders, and he was a walk-on who was promoted to scholarship. Now, they may sign some uh, transfer portal receivers, but that hasn't happened yet, and seven is a very small number. They Really, it should be about 10, uh, maybe 11 scholarship receivers that you have going into any given season. Um, they've also been really sort of thinned out in their secondary, because not, not only do you have Chase Lucas, Jack Jones, DeAndre Pierce, Evan Fields departing, but then Cam Phillips elected to transfer and Tommy Hill, as we talked about earlier, and they aren't signing a bunch of defensive backs. So it's, it's looking like that position is going from a really deep, a reserve of um, backup talent to one that's going to be somewhat thin, I would say. And then even elsewhere, their offensive line, not just the not just the seniors who are outgoing, Kellen Deesh, Henry Haddis, but we saw that Donovan West announced that he's going to go pro. And then Jarrett Bell is planning to retire, not use his remaining eligibility so he can help with his family business. We didn't see Roman Deweese uh, practice in, in um, recently with the team. Um, so they're really shallow, I think, when you look at their offensive line situation between, yeah, they have Ladarius Henderson coming back as a starter. Spencer Lovell started at the end of the season. He's back. Ben Scott, 
has been a regular starter at right tackle, might have to move to center. But after those guys, you're now going to have to rely on really young players unless you get some uh, potential impact transfers. So that means all of a sudden that Asai Glass and Sione Vicoso and maybe one or two others, Ben Bray or, or someone, they have to step up in the big roles. And that's not really what you want to have happen when Jaden Daniels is returning for his fourth season at quarterback that you're going to say, okay, guess what, Jaden? Now you're not going to have as good of an offensive line. You're going to lose a couple of your key young receivers. Um, Curtis Hodges is not going to be back. And good luck. And and, and Trayon is not going to be back. So that's that's not a good overall trajectory, especially with their with their offensive side of the ball. I would say, and then and then uh, in the secondary. Yeah, it, it, that's without a doubt going to be a question that is going to continuously be asked. Something that's going to continuously be looked at throughout the offseason for ASU. Just how the roster is going to line up with everything going on and all the kind of outside noise, what really is going to happen on the inside. But that's the future. Let's talk about the past, shall we? The awards, the Sun Devil Source season awards from last year for ASU, even though it was a rather disappointing season in terms of just an eight and five finish to the season and a tied for second finish in the Pac-12 South, essentially. Let's first go on to offensive MVP, Chris, which is probably one of, if not the easiest choice on of all of the awards here. The winner, junior running back Rashad White. Runner-up was sophomore wide receiver Ricky Pearsall, but it was pretty much a runaway, Chris. Yeah, that one's easy, right? Anyone could have picked Rashad White. Uh, I, even though he was responsible for just a huge volume of ASU's overall offense this year and um, the number of plays, that by percentage that went to him really can almost make an argument that he needed to get the ball more, uh, which sounds crazy, but there are several, I think four running backs who got 20 or more carries in him in uh, the PAC 12. And yes, he was second in ASU in receptions 43 or whatever it ended up being. But um, I look at like DJ Foster and what he did at ASU and a lot of two-back structures under Mike Norvell when Foster averaged 60, low 60s uh, receptions in, in his final three years with the program. Uh, I feel like um, there just there weren't enough weapons for the Sun Devils to not have tried to get the ball even more in White's hands, given how productive that he was. Um, it, obviously, he was going to depart for the NFL. I think that he has a chance to be a starting NFL running back, certainly at a minimum, somebody who will be uh, sharing a major role in the backfield, uh, just given the, the um, how broad that his skill set really is. I, I think he probably ends up being, you know, running backs don't, get, don't go too high typically, but I really think he'll end up being a mid-round selection and, and have a really nice career. And then um, as just a runner-up, Ricky Pearsall made a big jump, right? Because he played mostly H uh, in 2020, that slot role where he split with LV Bunkley Shelton. And given the challenges that they had at receiver this year, he was asked to move around and play X and know how to play Z in some of their some of their personnel groupings. And I thought it was seamless. He um, has a really high football IQ, 
understands how to get lined up and, and execute. Um, I think that he has a, a chance to be one of the better receivers actually in the Pac-12 uh, over the next couple of seasons. Now he has better sort of uh, perspective, I guess you could say, with uh, understanding of Jaden Daniels and where they're going to be able to go with that moving forward. Yeah, Ricky Pearsall had a good season. We'll talk about him later on in the awards as well. Let's flip over to the other side of the ball. Defensive most valuable player. The defense was strong all year, continuing to make plays. A big part of that was junior linebacker Darian Butler, who wins this award, and the runner-up was junior defensive tackle DJ Davidson. You talk about it a little bit. Both players are just very strong talents that really could have been flip-flop, but let's talk a little bit about Darian Butler and why he's the one that ends up with this award. Well, he's just one of the most enjoyable guys to watch that ASU's had in recent history. I always say that I measure someone against their potential, not against how, not against other guys. So it's not a race of who's the best. It's how good you can be relative to your capability. And Darian Butler uh, personifies um, really self-actualization as an ASU football player. Uh, the last two years he spent getting his body in much better shape, leaner, quicker, stronger, faster, more athletic. Um, I think that just there's a there's a different sort of capability uh, that that unlocked in his game and that we saw with his ability to rush the passer, to drop and get interceptions uh, and to play as a full service guy. Now he had concussion issues at the tail end of the season and didn't go out the way I'm sure he, he wanted to as a result of that, but he was outstanding. And um, I think one of the better linebackers in the PAC 12 and deserving of at least second team honors that he got. But at the same time, I'll say that DJ Davidson, um, probably one of the more underappreciated guys that ASU's had really in recent years because the nose tackle position doesn't make a lot of flash plays. He's not, he's 330 pounds or whatever, right? He's not in the backfield getting a lot of sacks and uh, things of that nature, but um, just his ability to anchor at the point, his effectiveness against the run, the way that opponents have to really scheme and account for him, um, you know, how he's able to, even though he's not making sacks, the, the impact that he has, uh, on passing downs is, is quite significant. And he had a lot of tackles actually uh, for a nose tackle. I just think that he's ready also to play at the NFL level and have a successful career. Uh, so I, I view it as those two guys, almost like 1A and 1B, not number one, number two. Yeah, for sure. Both of them had very strong seasons. Let's now move on to special teams. Special teams, most valuable player. Now this took a pretty wild turn just weeks before the season started with Michael Turk entering the transfer portal, ended up transferring to Oklahoma, one of the better punters in all of the country. They turned to freshman punter Eddie Chaplitsky, and he had a very, very hot start. He might have maybe tailed off a little bit, but he wins it as special teams most valuable player, and it was pretty clear that he was one of the better players with his struggles in kicking this year. Yeah, I mean, his start was that was incredible right uh what was his first punt like landed and stopped on the one or something like somebody shot it with a uh, a rifle from the top bro i even know how that happened and then it just seemed like his ability to pinpoint the ball 
from a location standpoint and angling and depth control in the first part of the season was just outstanding. Like one of the best, I, I, I think maybe the best I've ever seen actually at ASU. And he, his, his leg isn't extremely explosive. Like he doesn't have um, as big of a leg as, as uh, some of the guys that ASU's had in, in, in recent history. I think there's probably three or four that have had a bigger leg, uh, but he's a freshman. So I think he's going to get stronger and more powerful as he sort of uh, develops. I remember when, um, when Hawk got to ASU, he didn't have that big of a leg. But by the end, it, he, it, uh, he had one of the better legs in college football. And Hawk, Matt Hawk went on to be a successful NFL punter. Um, and I, I just think that we're seeing, we're probably going to see that sort of a similar trajectory with Japlitsky um, over the next couple of years. And we didn't have a runner up for this position because there just wasn't anyone that I think deserved it this year. And everybody expected DJ Taylor was gonna be one of the better return men in, in the Pac-12. That really didn't materialize. He was overzealous and made some mistakes early. And then that sort of prevented him, I think, from getting into a better a zone uh, through the middle of the season. And he finally sort of started to get out of it, but not enough. And there wasn't any core special teamer who to me was just outstanding in the way that they have had in the past. Yeah, Chaplitsky was one of the obvious choices. And as you said, it kind of in the group was not quite obvious outside of that, a player that stood out. But let's go over to the young guns, the freshman defensive freshman of the year, with winner freshman linebacker Eric Gentry. He's the winner. The runner-up was freshman defensive lineman B.J. Green. Talk a little bit about both these guys and why you ended up going with Eric Gentry. Yeah, so I'm pretty excited um, that I was able to sort of forecast that Gentry would have this type of an impact, right? Um, he was, like, I think the eighth highest-rated guy in ASU's class, like no higher than the eighth highest rated guy in ASU's class. Um, I remember he was number 777 overall. And I just, from the very beginning when he arrived in spring football, it was just obvious that that was way too low. This, this very clearly is a top 200 level prospect in the country in his class. You know, um, you look at NFL drafts, right? seven rounds uh you got whatever it ends up being 250 pitch something like that and there's just no doubt that gentry in my mind is uh not someone that looks like a fringy type of a nfl prospect like if anything given the fact that he was 200 pounds soaking wet on a good day in his pads at 6'6 and he was doing the things that he did and his frame is so great and his instincts are outstanding, um, and his poise was remarkable. I, I just think that he is off the charts potential. Like he could end up being one of the top two or three or four uh, outside linebacker prospects in the class. Um, when it's all said and done, I wouldn't be surprised if this guy ends up being a first or second round draft pick. He literally has that level of potential. I think that it would be really almost a surprise at this point if he doesn't end up being one of the best linebackers in the country 
by the time he's a junior in college. And maybe I'm putting uh, expectations a little bit high for him, but I, I really think that they're warranted. Very rare that someone comes along and uh, makes that sort of an immediate impression. And then BJ Green, I mean, my gosh, uh, he was a walk-on who led the team in sacks, which hasn't happened in decades. Um, and he didn't even play anywhere near as many snaps as a, probably seven, six or seven other ASU defensive linemen. So that tells you that Robert Rodriguez did a phenomenal job with that evaluation. And from an early coaching and developmental standpoint, BJ Green to me is he has a lot of the attributes that you want to see in a interior gap exploiting pass rushing defensive lineman like three technique type stuff his low leverage like drive pad level hand usage they all are great and allow him to show up especially when you then build in the stunts that rodriguez uses he probably won't be able to get a scholarship this spring because there's rules that you can only give out 25 new scholarships in any given year and so ASU is going to have to try to do everything it can to hold on to him through this spring. Um, but in the fall, I'm sure he will be on scholarship and play an even more prominent role with the team. Yeah, BJ Green, especially he had the two side performance against Wisconsin in the Las Vegas Bowl. And he just seems like a guy that everyone likes. And there were a lot of buzz around him on social media as well in terms of they just it wasn't really good for BJ Green. It was, I'm super excited for him and, and he's going to keep pushing as much as he has been. So it'll be fun to watch what BJ Green can do. Moving over to the offensive side of the ball. This one is a little interesting. Freshman running back Diamante Trainum is the one that wins it. The runner up is freshman wide receiver LV Bunkley Shelton. Diamante Trainum, of course, now moving to the other side of the ball to play linebacker, but he looked like he could be a bell cow in the future for ASU. Talk a little bit about Diamante Trainum last season and and then L.B. Bunkley Shelton as well. That's a big hit for ASU. He would have been the starting running back. It's clear that he would have probably been in line for 150 to 200 carries uh, next year. And he averaged, if I'm not mistaken, well above five yards per carry, which is really impressive. And um, so that's a big hit. I, you know, I, I never really got to talk to him about the what went into the calculus of deciding that he thought that his future would be better served at linebacker at Ohio State. I think there's a little it's a little bit of a it's a calculated risk because yeah, linebackers can probably have longer careers and and make more money on average. Um, but he's two years into his college career and now he's gonna have to learn to play on the other side of the ball at a place where they certainly have a lot of other really good linebacker prospects. So he may have a hard time getting on the field this year. I don't know. And that's, that's three years into college. And then you only got another year or two to really show what you're capable of. Um, athletically, I think he can do it as, as it relates to ASU when the team also lost Rashad white and only has Daniel and got returning. That, that is a really significant blow uh, for the Sun Devils on offense. Who did we have, Ethan, for runner-up here? Runner-up was LV Bunkley-Shelton. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so look, I, I think at the end of the day, 
there's plenty of things that Bunkley Shelton can get better at. He's going to have to become more of a uh, longer route running weapon to be able to unlock some of his tools. But as a pure uh, quick game leverage underneath uh, uh, option, working out of motions and from the slot, I think he gets open as well as anyone on the team and should be able to continue to be a high volume guy on throws that get out of Jaden Daniels hand pretty quickly uh, over the next year, you know, and then beyond that as he continues his career. Yeah. Of course, as you talked about train them, that'll be interesting to watch and Ellie Bunkley Shelton as well. We talked about him a little bit earlier, but offensive most improved player was sophomore wide receiver Ricky Pearsall with the runner-up being senior tight end Curtis Hodges. Ricky Pearsall had a lot of opportunity this year and really kind of ran with it with uh, Jaden Daniels being able to find him. The UCLA game is the game that always stands out to me when talking about Ricky Pearsall. But what did you see from him this season and as well as Curtis Hodges? Kind of like what we were saying before, right? Like now he's able to line up anywhere on the field, run any kind of a route. Um, we saw him do the toe tap stuff on the sideline, catching balls that he really had no business catching. Um, we've seen the double move stuff where he's able to be the defense on the seam or on the perimeter. We've seen the, the ability to come back, work his way back to the football. Um, he's a good trick play weapon, somebody that who can throw the football on, on, on some of those concepts. Uh, you can make a case that he deserved the ball even more. I think that they they probably should have, if I'm Zach Hill, maybe forced the ball to go his way even more than they did, given the overall sort of challenges they had at wide receiver. And then Curtis Hodges um, really got criticized, understandably so early in his career, but just goes to show you kind of what's possible for guys who do have a higher athletic potential if they get into the right sort of role and mindset and uh, a guy who had drops and str struggled as a as a receiver before tra transitioning to tight end started to show that he had quite a bit of range um, uh, going up to get the football in, in, in some difficult situations and did it really uh, on the boundary did it on the did it on the on the, on the seam over the middle you know and um, I think his blocking was probably underappreciated over the last couple of years, especially as a wingback and what he did in the run game uh, and his ability to chip and help as a protector. They were all pretty good. Uh, I, it, he, he, he should have got bigger and stronger over the last couple of years. I think there, there was a knock on him. It was that he didn't go as, as far as he could have or should have with his body. Um, and I think that that sort of probably contributed to, not being as dominant as he could have been. So he's going to have to work on that really aggressively in right now and the months to come because he's someone who probably won't get drafted, but he will get an NFL camp opportunity and is someone like the position that he plays. There are a lot of guys actually who never really did much in, in college and yet two, three, four years removed from that experience, they all of a sudden start to make rosters and play more significant roles in the NFL. And I think it's possible for Hodges. There's, um, 
there's not a lot of guys that are six, seven and can run, you know, roughly as well as he can and, and do some of the other things. So um, he's going to at least get a shot. Yeah. I remember earlier this season, there was one of the Herm Edwards press conferences. He talked about his height and just how that kind of creates mismatches uh, no matter who's going up against him and how he can make plays. So that'd be interesting to see uh, what he's able to do. And as we talked about Ricky Pearsall is going to be an interesting one moving forward. Defensive most improved player, Went with two freshmen on this, both the winner and the runner-up. The winner was freshman defensive end Anthony Cooper, and the runner-up was freshman defensive lineman Omar Norman Lott. Anthony Cooper took big strides this season. What did you see from him, Chris? I think Anthony Cooper was the most improved overall player on the team. Um, 2020, he came in as a reserve guy on passing downs on the outside, and he had some effectiveness um, with just his creativity and feel as a pass rusher. But he didn't have as, as nearly as much of a physical component to back that up, to, to be a full service player, to handle the run, uh, to beat, you know, to win on secondary uh, actions as a pass rusher when his speed sort of was countered successfully. Um, initially in reps and that I think evolved and changed. Uh, he got much, much stronger, I think in his core and his lower half. Uh, I think he was a lot more stout at the line of scrimmage against the run. Uh, I saw him chase down uh, significantly more plays from the backside and um, really show the ability to, to win with some power at times that wasn't present in his game as a freshman. So his development under that tutelage of Rodriguez, just absolutely outstanding. Um, it, I liked him coming out of high school. I thought he was one of the more underrated guys. He was kind of off the beaten path. He'd go to one of the more prominent schools. Uh, he played with a motor and there was a lot that was intriguing about him. Um, I, I, of course, ASU now is gonna return Jermaine Lolay and Omar Norman Lott and B.J. Green. That's three, three technique tackles. So um, that means Anthony Cooper is probably going to remain an end. But I think now he's good enough to where he can move and play different slots. And um, so with Tyler Johnson moving on, um, the, yeah, ASU gets Travez Moore back, Michael Matus. But Anthony Cooper, to me, is right there um, with those guys in terms of his ability to play a lot. And, and uh, make an impact. Yeah, for sure. And what about, or we'll, we'll see uh, how that ends up going a little bit. Omar Norman Lott was surprising as well at the beginning of the season. Um, in practice, there, there, was a, there was one, they were doing one-on-ones and it was, he just had a couple moves that it, it just wasn't, it didn't even seem like there was a chance for the offensive lineman uh, when he was out there. So it'll be interesting to see. There's them. Yeah. Bro. You know, Ethan, there's a little shades of just, I just don't, don't get me wrong here. Cause I'm not saying he's going to be that, but there are some shades of Will Sutton in Omar Norman lot. The way that he gets off the football, the quick twitch um, between the, the, the guard and the tackle at that three tech and how low that he's able to get and quickly um, leverage um, in a way that, 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 make it really, really challenging for 
blockers to sort of reach and keep their hands in a successful position against him. He had that one of those major flash plays against Wisconsin. The problem is that for every really impressive play, Norman Lott would have like a 15-yard penalty, right? And something that would be, you know, uh, head-scratching or maybe worse. And, and so he's got to stop those types of things because he has violent hands. He uses them really aggressively, which is uh, something you always want to see in, in, in linemen uh, coming up. He has great quickness and twitchiness, and he gets off the ball, and his body was in much better shape this year uh, than it was the, the year prior. I, I really think that that's an NFL prospect right there. And not just people say, oh, yeah, Jermaine Lolay coming back. And, yeah, but Norman Lott, I think, is, like, one of the better actual NFL prospects today, as he will probably have on defense next year. Yeah, I you, you can see what you're saying, and you have to kind of look out for it and, and to not look the wrong way. But he is very, very, very impressive, as you said. So we'll see what happens there. The Offensive Scout Team Buzz Award, the winner for this was freshman offensive lineman Sion Vicoso. Uh, Vicoso sorry. Uh, what did you see from him in practice that gives him this award? Yeah, so we actually didn't really get to see that much. Um it, you know, he was limited in, in August. He had a, he had limited really the whole first half of the year, eight months of the year. He had walking boots for an ankle, even though he was, he, you know, he was a LDS church mission three years out of high school already. People thought he might come in because he's a big guy, six, six plus 300 pounds and maybe compete to be a number two offensive tackle. Didn't really materialize, but everything that we heard, and this is why we use the word buzz for this, uh, was really that his progress in September, October, November was quite significant uh, to the point where they think that not only was he a steal as someone who didn't have other Pac-12 offers, except I think Oregon State, but someone who has a chance to be a multi-year starter at tackle at this level. And that's going to have to be realized here. Um, maybe even as soon as next year, but certainly he was, he drew as much attention on the scout team as any ASU offensive player. All right. And then defensive scout team buzz. The winner is freshman defensive lineman, Garen Stansbury, uh, a very good frame, promising, but undeveloped frame. what do you see from Stansbury? like a baby deer you know it's like eric gentry and stansbury you just like like you see those guys like roaming around and you're just like wow those those are going to be some majestic you know uh uh, uh players in the next couple of years stansbury he got the he's got that super long high cut um just legs that go for days but he's not overly narrow to his frame like he should probably weigh 240 pounds um in another couple of years and mostly he was on the scout team but he played on with their nascar package on passing downs in several games this year showed that he has the ability to get off the football and, and, and make some athletic moves working his way into the backfield 
I, he's going to take a big jump, I think, as he gets stronger uh, in the year ahead and learns how to play with the lower, uh, lowering his 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 knees. He's got to get better bend into his uh, his knees and his hips and play with the lower overall center of gravity and pad level and have his feet be able to work in all of the techniques that Rodriguez is asking of him. I think that was a major challenge, being able to settle into a stance and play with the type of, of leverage and center of gravity that, that the coaches want. It's very uncomfortable, actually, for a lot of these guys, especially when they don't have tremendous strength uh, to be able to do that on a play-to-play, rep-to-rep basis. But I think that Stansbury's making strides and, and he's going to be really good. All right. And the last award is coach of the year. We've talked about tons of players that have been under his tutelage already in these awards, which makes sense in terms of him being coach of the year. And it's a back-to-back winner, defensive line coach, Robert Rodriguez. And the runner up for this one was defensive coordinator, Antonio Pierce. The defense was strong all year. So not surprising that both the winner and runner up coming from that side of the ball. what do you see from these two coaches throughout the year? Yeah, I don't even want to mince words here. I just, I'll say straight up, and I've made this point before. I think that Robert Rodriguez is the best overall football coach that ASU has on its roster. Um, His, he has a rare ability not only to um, communicate with his players and teach technique, um, but also his, his motivational impact the way that he relates to guys, his understanding of the game, um, his aptitude, his technical skill and proficiency. Uh, he, 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 to me, he just checks so many boxes that you, you very often don't see coaches have as many um, of those boxes checked as they do. Usually guys are good at one or two or maybe three things, but not the, all of the five or six things that it takes, you know, the, we saw he evaluated BJ Green. He evaluated Darren Sandsbury. He um, was involved in successfully recruiting um, some of these guys. Now he's developing them and they like playing for him and he communicates well. And he talks to the media in an ex- extremely um, uh, skilled manner, the way that he uh, communicates. So, it's hard for me to like, not only is he the best coach on ASU's team right now, in my opinion, I think he's the best defensive line coach I've ever seen at ASU. And I've seen a lot because they went through uh, a different D line coach every year for like five years in a row. Right. I've, I've watched them. I've watched 10 or more defensive line coaches over the years at ASU. He is the best. He's one of the best position coaches I've ever seen. It's not a surprise to me if he ends up back coaching uh, defensive line um, at the NFL level, you know, for a good team. Um, I just really can't say enough positive things about him as a football coach. And then Antonio Pierce. Look, I think he actually outcoached a bunch of guys this year. I thought they had really well-developed approach to how they handled a bunch of teams. I think like they, they did a very good job against Stanford, for example, 
they did a really good job against UCLA. They had a um, what I thought was a pretty impressive approach against just about every team, and especially the way that they use their defensive backs um, when they had some injuries and guys go down, the way that they blended some of their personnel groupings. Really the only game that I looked at and said, man, they got out coached was Utah in the second half. I thought that was a very difficult um, Utah 12 personnel without substituting and the ability to move tight ends all over the field to generate mismatches either outside with their bigger guys or in the slot with um, their, their, um, their small shifty uh, slot receiver working against the linebacker. Uh, kind of no matter what ASU did, they weren't able to really have the right answer against Utah. And that proved to be also the case when Utah pretty easily handled Oregon uh, defense twice this year. So Utah was phenomenally coached and the only team that I thought really got the better of ASU. Other than that, I think Antonio Pierce showed me that uh, he's ready to be a good he can, he can be a good defensive coordinator uh, at the college level at a minimum for the duration of his career. Um, and you know, obviously, he's someone who could potentially end up back uh, coaching linebackers in the NFL or something like that. I know he aspires to be a head coach. We'll see what happens um, with that, especially in light of the unknowns of what might happen with the NCAA investigation. But um, I was impressed overall. Yeah, and I, I think throughout the year, we, we talked about the defense being beaten up. The, the defensive line had a bunch of injuries as well, and, and that kind of makes it even more impressive just what both of them were able to do throughout the season, which shows a lot to who they are as coaches uh, to be able to get that out of new players each week almost, it seemed, throughout the season with whatever problems it may may have arisen, they were able to figure it out. But that's it for now for this, this podcast, I should say, that we're going to talk about for football. Make sure we're going to have a premium podcast that we'll release later this week. One of the subjects we will talk about is the transfer portal conversation and recruiting that we talked about early on in this podcast. So if you want to hear that a discussion in length about that topic, make sure to head over to the premium podcast later on this week. But for now, we're going to talk a little bit of basketball. It's been a pretty hectic start to the season for Bobby Hurley and the team. They didn't play for about a three-week period because of COVID issues, both in the program and out of the program. And then they even had electrical problems in Desert Financial Arena that ended up having them not play one of their games completely. What do we see from this team so far, Chris? And it hasn't been a great start. Uh, Bagley as well has been injured for a lot of the season. He is supposed to be one of the star guys heading in. But what do we see from both the coaching standpoint and the playing standpoint of how this team's performed? Well, yeah, I think um, to say it's not been a great start is, is uh, as generous as we probably could be, right? Um, five and eight, one and two in the conference. Um, for, I don't think they've won more than – they won three games in a row, right? Oregon, Grand Canyon, Creighton uh, was their only sort of decent stretch of the season. Other than that, it, it's, it's, it's been ugly. Um, and the surprising thing for me really has been that their guard play 
has been so lackluster. Marion Jackson was uh, player of the year in the MAC. It's a pretty good mid-major conference. Uh, he was a good, really good. He has been just supremely disappointing so far this year. And he's had a little bit of a wrist issue on his uh, shooting hand. So perhaps that's been some sort of a factor, but the decision-making, these overall sort of consistency of his approach hasn't been good. Uh, Luther Muhammad, um, you know, I think he's been below, below my expectations really uh, overall. Um, the guy that's been the most sort of encouraging has been DJ Horn, but you know, he's a decent Pac-12 player. And then you look at the front court and you see that they don't they they haven't had anyone who's been able to be like Romello White or anything close to that since then. That decision for Romello White to transfer late the way that he did has just been a monumental thing that has hurt ASU for the last couple of years and continues on to right now because Jalen Graham, um I'm at a loss almost like it's to me, it seems like he's not learning. He's not, he's not his, his basketball IQ isn't what it needs to be. He's not, something is just missing there. And then even some of his energy um, going to get rebounds, you know, like trying to block a bunch of shots. He has no chance to block and opening up second chance opportunities and being content to hit threes and these spinning sort of, shot that he I just I mean it's it's not good and Alonzo Gaffney then had COVID he was out Hurley's not feeling good about Graham so he's playing John Olmstead twice as many minutes that is no recipe for success at ASU and Enoch Bawachi is I think he still has a lot of upside but he, right now, he, he, he should be more of a role player than a stalwart guy that you're relying upon very heavily. But yet, he's stressed out there. He did have like a nine-rebound, nine-point game or something like that, like a near double-double, and he's making strides. But he's not going to be good enough, fast enough for them this year if Marcus Bagley's not playing as he hasn't been out there for a few weeks. And really, they only have Kamani Lawrence and then like, a sort of below average uh, rest of their front court of what they're getting on a nightly basis when coupled with the guard struggles that they've had. And it's, we're sort of at a precipice now with this, with Bobby Hurley era um, at ASU, right? He, he, he had um, the guard U era then he was able to sort of, continue that, had Remy Martin, Alonzo Verge, Josh Christopher, but the guys didn't play well together, didn't really even enjoy playing together. Last year, Hurley had the comments about wanting to find guys that he could go to war with, said that he was more invested in, in spending the offseason working on the transfer portal and trying to achieve that aim than any time in, in his career to this point. He had a whole new uh, coaching staff turnover that I think also um, – forced him into that type of a role but it's just not happening like it's just like the coaching isn't good enough for the players that they have they're not getting everybody on the same page they're not they don't look on offense they just don't 
seem to have enough of a um, idea of what they're trying to achieve in the collective. And then they're not, they're not playing hard enough, physical enough, intense enough defense with any sort of a consistency. And unless they improve in, in, in some of these areas, they're just going to be a team that struggles to win more than say 10 to 12 games this year. And that's very, very disappointing. Yeah, and, and once you you get to that point where, I mean, anyone, you don't even really have to dive very deep into the team to realize it hasn't been a good start. They've had, they're one and two in the conference right now, five in overall. Those two losses in the conference were a game where they only scored 29 points, a game that they just recently lost to California in a 24-point loss. But then there's one stretch of the season after that 29-point loss to Washington State, a win at Oregon, a win versus GCU in the win at Creighton that it looked like they may have sort of found something on the light of kind of that three run win streak. Is this season salvageable for Bobby Hurley and the team and just in general at all? Well, it, they're not going to be an NCAA tournament team. Like they're, this isn't, they're not going to make some big run in the, in March in the PAC 12 tournament. Um, I don't think that they really have much of a chance to make the NIT right now. Um, which to me, I mean, they should have at least been a strong, strongly in competition for that. You know, granted, the Pac-12 has a very clear top three teams right now. It's like Arizona, UCLA, and USC. And then everybody else is sort of like decent. Oregon's not as good as it has been. But some of these other teams, Washington State and Cal are a little bit better and ASU is not really better than, in my opinion, like almost any of these other teams, maybe like one or two of the remaining uh, nine, eight teams in the Pac-12. So they, I guess, theoretically could improve enough to somewhere finish somewhere in the five, six, seven range and maybe potentially contend for an instable, I mean, an NIT type of a berth, but they would have to just make significant strides in ways that I don't think is going to happen and so right now i i think that i overestimated what the team would be based upon seeing the individual parts they have not improved the overall whole and uh they're they probably will be an under 500 team this season and that'll be a huge disappointment for what expectations were going into the season but We'll just have to wait and see what actually ends up happening and if any of the players can come together, Bobby Hurley, and turn it around at all. But for now, that's it for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. Uh, make sure, as we talked about the premium podcast coming later, it is going to be a Q&A with members. So Chris is going to post on the board. So make sure to ask questions uh, and we'll be answering anything that you guys want to know. Uh, but for now, that's it for this podcast. I'm Ethan Ryder. I've been with Chris Cartman, and we will see you guys next time.